Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Friday, July the 26th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan, and today I am joined by our political editor, Pat Leahy, and we're at the McGill Summer School in Glenties in beautiful West Donegal, where Pat has just concluded a public interview with the Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar. And Pat, not surprisingly, Brexit was the most important item on the agenda. Yeah, I suppose we spent half of all the time available talking uh, about Brexit. Not really surprising, I suppose, given the events of recent days. One thing that struck me about it is that the Taoiseach was quite calm in his response to all this overheated rhetoric from the first couple of days of the Boris Johnson premiership. You know, we've seen, we've heard all this, you know, uh, talk of the backstop being uh, being torn up and ripped out of the withdrawal agreement and Boris Johnson saying in the House of Commons that we're out, deal or no deal. If the EU wants to talk to us on our terms, then fine. If not, we'll be out. A real ramping up of Brexit rhetoric in the last couple of days. And the Taoiseach's response to that seemed to me to be quite measured. He said, look, This is what he's saying in his first few days. Let's give him a chance to get his feet under the table and then we'll talk to him. He said there will be absolutely no movement on our uh, requirement for the backstop to be part of the withdrawal agreement. Boris says that he wants uh, a deal and if he does want uh, a deal, if he wants to leave with a deal, this is the way to do it and let's talk to him. Essentially, I thought he was suggesting let's talk to him when he's calmed down a bit. Just to say, you talked to him about a range of other issues as well, and we're going to return to those in a podcast next week, but very much the core of it was Brexit and what you're talking about. So let's have a listen to what he had to say. Taoiseach, I'm going to start with Brexit, of course. What will you say to Boris? <laughs> I think I'll start with hello. <laughs> um, <laughs> Maybe congratulations as well. Uh, but before I answer that, I just wanted to say what, um, what a pleasure it is to be here in Donegal. Um, I've been trying to take the cabinet out of Dublin a bit, and we had um, a cabinet meeting yesterday in, in Glen Cullum Kill. And I have to say, when the sky is clear and the weather is good, this county has to be one of the most beautiful places in the world. So it's been a real pleasure to be here. Um, and just want to pay tribute to Joe once again for um, organising what really is Ireland's premier summer, summer school. So thanks very much for that. This is shocking home crowd stuff now. Come on, what are you going to say to Boris? What are you going to say to Boris? Well, I, obviously the first, the first real thing I, I suppose I, I would like to do when I get a chance to speak to him is just get a sense from him uh, as to... Um, what he's thinking uh, and what his plans are. Um, he's demonstrated a degree, I think, of flexibility in the past, having voted both for and against the withdrawal agreement. Um, and uh, I don't think he's going to be entirely inflexible in the future, but um, dealing with counterparts, you really only get a proper sense of where they're going and what they're... Real, real red lines are, if you like. 
um, in, in, in the kind of tete-a-tete, -tete, the kind of one-to-one -one meeting that you do uh, either before or after you meet with officials. And, uh, and look, look, so I really look forward just, just to, first of all, congratulating him, maybe get, get a bit of measure, measure of the man, and uh, then really hearing from him as to what his plans are. Does that mean that you are, to some extent, discounting what we have heard from London in the last two days? Because he has completely changed the tone of the way the UK is addressing this question. Do, do you believe that stuff? Uh, believe what? When he says we will leave with or without a deal that the backstop has to be dumped, not just tweaked, but dumped entirely. That much harder rhetoric that has been the hallmark of his administration two days in. Do, do you take that with a pinch of salt or do you appreciate or do you, do you believe that the political context there has changed? I, I, think, um, I think he means what he says uh, and he's certainly taking a much harder line position than Prime Minister May did. Um, but he's also saying that he wants to leave with the deal. Um, and there isn't going to be a deal without a backstop. And, you know, as, as a European Union, we've made that abundantly clear all along that the backstop is an integral part of the withdrawal agreement. Uh, and without the backstop, which gives us the guarantees that we need, uh, not only is there no withdrawal agreement, there's no transition phase or implementation phase for the United Kingdom. Uh, and there can be no discussions on the free trade agreement until such a time uh, as we're satisfied that we have the guarantees that we need around Northern Ireland around citizens' rights and around the financial settlement. So um, to a certain extent, we're kind of back where we started. Well, he wants to go back to 2017, doesn't he, before the joint declaration, mm. and the EU is unwilling to do so. And if both sides maintain their current position, there will be no deal. Is that a fair assessment of where we are? Well, I think, I think to a certain extent, we are now back to where we were before the political declaration. Uh, he does seem to be resigning from um, those political commitments that the British government gave Ireland and the European Union back in December 2017. Um, and I suppose he's a new prime minister and it is a new government. And uh, in a democracy, uh, he's, a, he's probably within his rights to reopen those, to try to reopen those issues. But obviously, we're not going to uh, go along with that. Um, but I think it's always important to bear in mind that if the United Kingdom leaves with no deal, on the 31st of October, uh, that is their choice. Uh, there may be an attempt in the United Kingdom to somehow blame the European Union uh, or somehow blame Irish inflexibility. Um, that is totally wrong. Uh, the UK can stop no deal at any time. It can revoke Article 50. Uh, it can request an extension for a good reason. It can ratify the withdrawal agreement. So uh, if no deal happens on the 31st of October, uh, whatever the consequences are for uh, the British economy, uh, for the Union uh, and for Ireland, um, they will be things that they've brought on themselves. And if he were to turn out to be more reasonable than he sounds in recent days, if he was to say seek a tweak to the backstop, a, a beefed up review mechanism or something uh, of that order, what would your approach be? Um, like we're not, we're not reopening the withdrawal agreement and everyone across the European Union, the 27 member states, the institutions are all, all agreed on that. Um, but we have shown reasonableness and flexibility in the past. 
Um, we were able to give Prime Minister May some additional legal guarantees in Strasbourg during her attempts to uh, get the agreement ratified. Uh, they did ask for a review clause and they got one. Um, they asked for the backstop to apply to all of the UK and not just to Northern Ireland, and they got that too. Um, so what we can't do is reopen the withdrawal agreement or renegotiate that. Um, but we have to be open to the possibility uh, of there being um, changes to the political declaration. Um, but he says that's not enough. Let's, let's see what he says <laughs> in a few weeks' time. You know, this, this, this is the way politics is done sometimes. Um, and I don't... What, what, what do you mean by that? Do you mean that kind of public posturing, privately a softer line, that all this is part of an elaborate dance of statesmanship? If, if, he, if he means what he says by wanting to leave with a deal and wanting to have a free trade agreement with the European Union, um, well, then he will have to depart from some of what he said in the last couple of days. What's your assessment of his strength in Parliament? Because I know this idea has been going around government and also in Brussels that, you know, even if he wanted to, Parliament will not let, let Boris leave without a deal. Um, it's, if you just look at the arithmetic, it's a pretty weak position, uh, even with the DUP. Uh, supporting the Conservative Party and with Sinn Féin not turning up. Um, they only have a majority of one. Uh, and um, there are quite a lot of Conservative MPs who are very patriotic people who um, have already said that they would be willing to vote in such a way that prevents no deal from happening. So um, the, the parliamentary arithmetic is difficult for the new Prime Minister. I'm sure he knows that too. Uh, Presumably, why, he too can count. Yes, indeed, and uh, and um, you know th that is why we can't discount the possibility that um, that there may be an election in the, in the United Kingdom uh, before or after October thirty first, and we have to bear that in mind. Isn't that what his cabinet looks like and his senior staff appointments? It looks like gearing up for an election, which presumably, if he's gearing up for it, he thinks he can win. Yes. Um, but the timing, the timing is everything. You know, he may wish to go to the country having delivered Brexit. You know, so having delivered Brexit with the deal, presumably on the 31st of October, would potentially then be in a strong position to go to the country. That's a very different context and a very different timing to going to the country perhaps in September and saying that Parliament has blocked no deal or I now have a deal uh, that I can't get through Parliament and then going to the country then. So we have to be... Why is the possibility that we could see um, the United Kingdom going to the polls, electing a new House of Commons in, in September, October or November? And all the more reason that we should continue to have the political stability that we have here uh, in Ireland um, with the coalition of Fine Gael Independence, but also uh, with Fianna Fáil providing uh, that, that facilitation through the constant supply. And um, politics doesn't always work, but uh, I think it is a good example of how politics has given Ireland a degree of stability that doesn't exist elsewhere. Uh, and it is remarkable if you think about it when, when this current government was formed back after the election in 2016. Um, most people, including myself, didn't think it would last very long. Um, and we're now in our third British Prime Minister already. <laughs> Thank you.
Do you think maybe there'll be a fourth yet? Who knows? I was, I was going to anticipate my next question. Will we get to a fourth? <laughs> who knows? Do you ever worry that by sticking so hard on the backstop that you have, in effect, brought no deal closer? I, I don't think we have, you know, stuck rigidly hard to it. You know, bear in mind the backstop was something that was co-designed by the UK, Ireland and the European Union. Um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, we never asked that it apply to all the United Kingdom, that it applied to Great Britain. That was something the British government wanted. Um, and when they wanted a review clause, we were willing to put in the review clause. And when they wanted further uh, assurances um, and political declarations, uh, they got them. So I, I think we've been very reasonable, actually, um, all the way along, given that Brexit is certainly not a problem of our creation and it's something that people in Northern Ireland voted, uh, vote, voted against. Um, but a, a withdrawal agreement without a backstop, like, that is no deal. But it's the same as no deal. But is, isn't this the kind of structural flaw at the centre of uh, the, the backstop strategy, that it, by preventing the ratification of a withdrawal agreement in Westminster, it risks bringing about that thing that it, uh, that it was designed to prevent? But uh, consider the counterfactual. If we had the withdrawal agreement with, without the protocol in Ireland and without the backstop, essentially all we'd be doing is buying a bit of time. It is, the withdrawal agreement without the backstop is no deal, just putting it off for a year or two. Okay, and but is, a, we, is the possibility of a hard border in two, four, five years not better than a hard border now? I think what we need to do is to secure an agreement that allows us to avoid a hard border. I don't think it's much an achievement just to try to put it off for another year or two. You know, we've had three years of this already, and the uncertainty itself is a problem. Funny, because with the greatest of respect to your profession, politicians are normally quite content to kick problems down the road. Not you seem to be running always. after this one. <laughs> not, not always. It, it, it depends on, on, on the circumstances. And, you know, it's, it's three years or more since the referendum now. Um, and I think the time for kicking the can down the road has long since passed. Uh, and it is causing uncertainty. You know, it's causing economic uncertainty. Uh, people thinking about making business investments, making lifetime investments. It's caused enormous uncertainty and instability in Northern Ireland. And I, I don't think we can just kick it down the road for another two years in the, in the hope that something crops up. How do you answer the charge that you've been guilty of utilising the green jersey for political gain? Because you have kind of bashed the Brits a bit on, uh, on Brexit, very possibly with due, uh, with, with due cause, but you have profited politically by it, haven't you? Um, I, I, all, all I'm doing is what the head of any government in any country should do, which is to represent their country's national interests. Um, I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think we've done that in, in, in a nationalistic way. I don't think we've done it in a jingoistic way at all. I think we've um, been quite measured in, in how that's been approached by me, by the Thonshta, by Mr. McEntee and others. Our decision, which the government has made with the political support parties uh, across the Dáil, which is essentially to above all else, maintain our membership of the, uh, of, of the single market, even at the expense of friction between North and South in 
trade terms. That seems to me like a very big strategic decision. It's almost like and two national questions. Pascal Donahue has spoken about this in, in speeches, that there are these two national questions. And we're choosing Europe, even at the, exp uh, the expense of potential difficulties between us and the North. Well, I, I think that's a decision that, that the Irish people made. Uh, you know, we focus a lot on the referendum that happened in the UK. Um, you know, we had referendums too. Uh, we decided to join the European Union. We decided to join the single market with the Single European Act uh, referendum back in 1986, I think it was. Um, we decided to join the Euro when we voted for the Maastricht Treaty and decided to do so knowing that the UK uh, wasn't going to join the Euro. So we as a nation have decided that our place is at the heart of Europe, um, that it's our single currency, our customs union, our single market, and we're not going to allow uh, decisions made in the UK to drag us, drag us out of that. Uh, so we will protect the single market. We'll make sure that Ireland, um, Ireland's position within the single market uh, is not diluted in any way. Uh, and if that does require uh, friction between uh, Northern Ireland uh, and, and, and Ireland, which it would, that there be tariffs, for example, um, that's a price we don't want to have to pay, but is a price that we would have to pay to protect our jobs, protect our economy and protect our future. So can you tell us a bit about those preparations for checks on goods? I mean, I know that the preparations across government are very broad and, uh, and very detailed, but in a way they've, you know, they all kind of crystallize on this idea of, of the checks. So, you know, wh where, will the, where will the checks be? What, will be? what will their nature be? What will it mean for people, say, from this county bringing merchandise or animals across the border? Like, quite frankly, it's not, not determined yet. Um, we're still in discussions with the European Commission about no deal planning. Um, you know, certainly if no deal happens, um, the UK becomes a third country that includes Northern Ireland. So for example, um, tariffs and taxes will be imposed on imports from Northern Ireland and Britain. Uh, taxes are generally collected online these days or paid at tax offices. They wouldn't have to be done uh, at the border. Um, but they would have to be paid, uh, and that would certainly be a major restriction on trade. Uh, again, customs declarations will, would have to be, be filled in. Uh, all those things that people would be familiar with from the past uh, would apply to trade uh, between, North and, between North and South and also between Britain and Ireland. Um, and then uh, the kind of, kind of checks that we're uh, considering are checks happening at business levels, uh, at business level at destinations, uh, and also checks at ports of entry. Uh, one of the things that we've put forward as um, part uh, of what could happen in, in No Deal uh, is that the island of Ireland will be treated as a single zone for the purposes of agriculture, for the purposes of uh, what they call SBS, uh, sanitary and phytosanitary checks and so on. And those will be done uh, on the ports of entry, both north, north and south. But that would require uh, the agreement of the UK to, to do that uh, and also the European Union. Um, but I think it's always very important when we talk about No Deal planning uh, that we never create the wrong impression that this is this is a good thing it's not um uh, and these are not the alternative arrangements that people talk about that don't really exist uh, this will be very much a damage limitation exercise how big will that damage be uh, like we don't know for sure but there's lots of reports done they've seen you know ranging from the sri to copenhagen economics as to what the impact would be uh, certainly the economy is slowing down um probably not a recession, or if there's a recession, only a short one. 
uh, and a slowdown in employment growth. Um, but we're preparing for that too. And the fact that we have a budget surplus for the first time in a very long time, um, the fact that uh, we have a strong economy uh, means that we're in a position to um, counteract some of that. Uh, we will be in a position, for example, to borrow, uh, to run a deficit, to uh, put in place what they call the, eco the, the automatic stabilizers, uh, and also invest in business to support businesses to defend jobs, particularly the agri-food sector, uh, particularly small exporters, and we'll have a very large package available to do that. What sort of numbers are you talking about when you say a very large package? I mean, one person that I was speaking to about this talked about in terms of almost nationalizing the entire beef industry. Is that the sort of scale that we'll be seeing possibly in a few months? I haven't heard that suggestion now. That's a new one. <laughs> but um, uh, it, 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 there are different mechanisms, of course. That There's direct exchequer supports, in which case you're talking hundreds of millions, but then there's also loan guarantees. Um, and some of those things are already in place. There's already uh, low-cost loans available to business um, and, and, and to industry. Um, and while there's hundreds of millions available to borrow, the exchequer isn't on the hook for that, if that makes any sense. It's, it's, it's partially backed by, by the government. So there's two sets of ways which we can support and reflate the economy. One is low-cost loans made to business, uh, to the farming sector, which they can, which they would have to pay back, obviously, but they'd be low-cost loans. Uh, and then there's also direct exchequer inter intervention, um, which wouldn't be money that would be repaid. To what extent do you think that Brexit changes the triangular relationship between Britain, the North, and the Republic? Um, I, I, I think it changes it fundamentally because... We went into the European Union together, uh, Ireland and the UK at the same time. Um, and I think part of the reason why we have a Good Friday Agreement, why we were able to bring about peace in Northern Ireland, uh, was that the European Union and European laws swept away so many differences, uh, not just uh, between North and South, but between Britain and Ireland. And the biggest long-term strategic risk, I think, from Brexit uh, is that that convergence that's happened um, between Britain and Ireland uh, and also between Northern Ireland and Ireland will start to change, not dramatically overnight, but we'll start to see divergence. Uh, and that creates, I think, I think, a big strategic risk. What's the nature of that risk? Well, I, 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 I think it raises very serious questions about, about the, future, the future of Northern Ireland. Um, do you expect to see a united Ireland in your lifetime? Do, do, do I expect? You're preposterously young, yeah. of course, as we all know. But you know. <laughs> not anymore. I'm middle aged now. But apparently, he's but, been fishing. Um, yeah. But um, do I, 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 I honestly don't don't know don't know the answer to that question. But I, I do think that um, more and more people, certainly in the event of no deal, um, more and more people in Northern Ireland will come to question the union. Um, people who you might describe as moderate nationalists or moderate Catholics who were more or less happy with the status quo um, will look more uh, towards United Ireland. And I think increasingly you see uh, liberal Protestants, liberal unionists starting to ask the question as to where they feel more at home. Uh, is it in uh, a nationalist um, Britain that's 
you know, talking about potentially bringing back the death penalty and things like that, or is a part of a uh, is a part of um, a common European home and, uh, and and part of Ireland? And I, I, I think I think one of the things, ironically, that could really undermine the union, the United Kingdom union, is a hard Brexit, both for Northern Ireland and for Scotland. And that's but that's a problem that they're going to have to face. In terms of that discussion, though, I mean, I suppose there's two schools of thought. One is that this is a discussion about the future of the islands that we need to have now and that the government needs to facilitate uh, that, that discussion. The other, whether by means of a green paper or, yeah. or some version of a New Ireland forum or but some vehicle or mechanism for that discussion to take place, which I suppose would involve questions like, well, you know, if in the event of unity, would the Irish and British governments just swap Good Friday Agreement places? Would you still have a power-sharing administration in Stormont just underpinned by, uh, uh, by Dublin rather than, uh, than, than London? The, the, the other school of thought is that we shouldn't have that discussion now at this time of unionist anxiety about the union. What do you think? Yeah, like I, I've, I've heard that argument, and I've had that argument many times, and I tend to come down on the latter side. Um, that having a green paper on Irish unity now or having a forum on Irish unity now um, would be provocative. Um, and we've always been trying to make the point that what we're trying to achieve um, with our negotiations on Brexit, with the withdrawal agreement, what we're trying to achieve is just the status quo. Uh, people being able to continue to live their lives, people continue to be able to trade as they do now. Um, and that's what we're trying to do, is, is keep the status quo. And there are people who would accuse us of trying to exploit Brexit to bring about a wider constitutional agenda to hasten the United Ireland. A lot Ireland. of unionist politicians um, have made that accusation at you. They have, some have, and, and I think we would totally play into that uh, view and that accusation if we were to go down the road now of having a white paper or having an All-Ireland Forum or Forum in Irish Unity. Um, that obviously could change, you know, in, in the event of a hard Brexit uh, happening. Uh, those questions then do, do arise in, in a way that they don't at the moment. So in the event of a hard Brexit, that could be the sort of thing that the government would seek to facilitate, some sort of a vehicle for discussion at least about a united Ireland or about the constitutional future? Well, I, I think if there is a hard Brexit on the 31st of October, uh, if the United Kingdom takes Northern Ireland um, out of the European Union against the wishes of the majority of people in Northern Ireland, uh, takes away their European citizenship uh, and undermines the Good Friday Agreement in doing so, um, those questions will arise whether we like it or not, and we have to be ready for that. Do you have any expectation of a breakthrough in the North in the foreseeable future? Um, uh, not, not, not at the moment. Uh, like There are discussions ongoing. Tanishta uh, met with the new Secretary of State uh, just today, uh, and I believe it was a good meeting. Um, and those conversations, those talks are, are underway between the parties in Belfast. But uh, I, I think in the current context, until Brexit is resolved one way or the other, um, I think it's going to be very difficult for the parties to come together. Uh, it is a real shame, though, that they haven't. Um, you know, it's hard to, hard to remember that the Assembly and, uh, and the Executive were brought down over a controversy about renewable heating, um, and shouldn't have been. Uh, and had they not been, I think it would have been much more likely that we could have had a common position 
uh, from Northern Ireland uh, because when the executive was functioning, politicians, rather than being party politicians, you know, were the Minister for Business or they were the Minister for Education and they're able to see things um, in a different way than when they get entrenched in party positions. So it's a real regret to me that uh, the Executive Assembly were brought down uh, and haven't been available to us uh, during, this, um, during this period. And I think as well, if the Assembly was meeting, for example, uh, the Assembly would almost certainly vote by majority in favour of the withdrawal agreement and the backstop. Uh, and having that indication uh, to the world would be a strong statement. And it's actually not understood sometimes when you uh, talk to British audiences and you talk to British politicians uh, that, that there's more to Northern Ireland than one political party. Uh, and it's regrettable that we don't have an assembly meeting to make those statements and say to the British people that actually uh, this is what Northern Ireland wants. Would you agree that one of the principal reasons that we don't have a functioning executive is because it doesn't suit the DUP because of the position of power and influence therein in Westminster? Um, I, I, from my conversations with the DUP, uh, I believe that they do, they do want the Assembly and the executive to be restored. Um, they do want devolution to be restored. Um, but they are in a particularly privileged position at the moment. And they have a lot of influence, as we all know, in Westminster. They hold the balance of power. Uh, the Good Friday Agreement says that the UK government, uh, as a sovereign government, has to be impartial uh, when it comes to Northern Ireland. Uh, allow people to judge for themselves uh, whether they think a constant supply arrangement it shows impartiality. Um, but I think the DUP must also be aware that, that this arrangement won't last forever, that there is only a majority of one. Uh, and if we are looking into a UK election in the next six months or a year, the probable outcome of that will be a loss of influence for the DUP. Um, Prime Minister Johnson might win big and not need them anymore, uh, or you may find uh, a coalition government involving uh, Labour, Liberal Democrats and Scottish Nationalists who will have a very different opinion. Uh, so uh, I, I'm, sure, I'm sure they can count too, and I'm sure they're smart enough to realise that um, the kind of influence they have now is probably probably not going to last very long. Would that make things easier for you? I, I think um, I, I think if Prime Minister May hadn't gone to the country, the withdrawal agreement would have been ratified. And I think if her gamble of going to the country had been successful and had she won a big majority, uh, the withdrawal agreement would have been ratified. So. It's just the way circumstances happen sometimes, I suppose. So Prime Ministers need to be careful about plumping for an early election. We might come back to that. I certainly do. Yeah, certainly do. So now, Pat, the teacher got a lot of very interesting things to say there. I mean, as you, as you said at the outset, it's in the context of this very, very heated political moment in London this week. Uh, it's a lot cooler, not just climatically, but emotionally here in Donegal. And the Taoiseach seemed quite measured, but strong and not resigning from anything. Yeah, I suppose, you know, two key messages that he had, you know, to send to London. One is our position doesn't change. And two is we look forward to talking to you. We're not taking all this rhetoric, all that, all that seriously. And uh, I, I think behind that is probably a, an expectation in Dublin or a suspicion, at least in Dublin, that the intended audience for the effusions from uh, number 10 in recent days and the performance at the dispatch box uh, in the House of Commons, the intended audience is not really Dublin or Brussels. 
that the intended audience is Tory voters and potential Tory voters and leave-minded uh, voters in the UK because my own view is that what Boris Johnson has learned from the Prime Minister, the, 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 the Prime Minister that has just been destroyed by Brexit, is that if you're going to do anything, you need a majority in the House of Commons, preferably a decent majority. She didn't have one. He doesn't have one. So he's got to go get himself one. And I think that if you share that analysis, then the corollary of that is that the people that are he's talking to are not Dublin and Brussels. And you really, you didn't need to be, you know, a very sophisticated interpreter to see that that's what the Taoiseach was saying, that he agrees with you on that. He talked to some extent about the weakness in, in of the Tory government in the House of Commons and the likelihood of an election. And he said that date could be anywhere. Uh, for example, it could be called in September. Yeah, he's clearly aware, and he made reference to this of the parliamentary uh, of the parliamentary weakness. You know, first rule of politics: got to be able to count, and everybody involved in this whole thing can count, and they're and uh, and they're the key numbers. So, I think there has been, I think there has been a view in both Dublin and Brussels in uh, in 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 recent weeks that if, even if Boris was serious with this hyper no deal stuff that he would be stopped from doing it by the Commons. Now, the Commons stopping him is less straightforward than it might appear. Simple votes or refusal to pass no-deal legislation won't do it. The Commons does have the nuclear button of a motion of no confidence, thus causing causing an election. Seems to me that the numbers are probably there for it, given that rump of Tory, not Remainers, but Tory no-no-dealers, if, if, uh, if you know what I mean. And, uh, and, and so I, I, I think there are the numbers there to defeat a, uh, a confidence motion. That gives Boris an election and a possible majority, in, uh, an election in which he gets to run as the vote-for-me-to-deliver-Brexit candidate, and that gives him his majority, I think. And then you might end up with no deal or you might end up with a withdrawal agreement with a backstop, which was, for example, Northern Ireland only because, uh, as he suggested, the DUP's power is going to wane in any case and it'll be gone if Boris Johnson gets a majority. Yeah, I think you could also see that the Taoiseach is clearly aware of this uh, of this possibility and of the temporary nature, the you know, the necessarily temporary nature of DUP leverage over the British government. Of course, if there is an election, everything depends on the outcome of that. And you get the sense from the Taoiseach that he's already looking uh, he's already looking beyond that. Now Anyone who would confidently predict what's going to happen in London tomorrow, never mind over the next four or six weeks, uh, is uh, is a fool. But it seems to me there are certain irresistible, undeniable political forces. And I think you kind of got a fair indication from the Taoiseach in his remarks today how he sees those playing out. There are a couple of things in his answers which I wonder about. One is he says... No backstop is the same as no deal, which seems to be not to be the case. There is a, you know, there is an elemental elemental difference between those two things in, a, in on a couple of levels. The other one was that he was still pretty unclear to me on what the preparations for a no deal on the thirty first of October would mean for the Irish border and the Irish government. Yeah, and I think partly maybe he's being coy on that. They've certainly uh, 
been coy for the last number of months. In recent weeks, we've seen the government admit for the first time that there will be checks of some sort. They absolutely say not on the border, no border infrastructures, but they confess that in order to protect the single market, that they that there will have to be checks on goods coming to the Republic from, uh, inside the single market from the UK, including Northern Ireland, outside the single market. That's a fact of life. And I think we will see over, and Tishuk made some reference to that, we will see over the coming several weeks, you will see that becoming more explicit. Because if we are faced with a no deal on the 31st of October, there's an awful lot of work going to have to be done between now and then. But I could imagine a Brexiteer listening to your conversation and saying, yes, and he talked about how online payments were very easy these days. He talked about how checks could happen at the point of origin. Uh, these are all exactly the MaxFac sort of solutions that we've been talking about for the last two years. And, and were he to say that, then one might counter uh, to our friendly Brexiteer uh, that, um, and I'm sure there are some of them that are friendly, uh, we, would, uh, we would counter and say, but show us where such a... Uh, uh, such, uh, a regime, a border regime, exists in the world that involves no friction and yet uh, 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 customs and an economic border. And they won't be able to point to it because as innumerable studies and committee fact-finding uh, undertakings have demonstrated, no such regime exists uh, in the world. Now, Bryce Steers insists that one can be mickeyed up over the next couple of years, the EU in Dublin don't believe that. That's one of the reasons why they insisted uh, on the backstop in the first place. I think what the Irish government, and we saw again admission from the Taoiseach uh, in, in, in the interview today, I think what it has come to accept is that the idea of frictionless north-south trade is not compatible with the north leaving the single market and the customs union. So there will be friction. The Northern Ireland Civil Service has estimated absolutely cataclysmic effects for the Northern Ireland economy of that friction. Seems to be widely discounted in Westminster, but I think Irish government is certainly very aware of that and will have to prepare for that. And finally, what did you make of his comments about Northern Ireland and the political situation there and how it might change in the wake of British exit and perhaps a no deal? I, t- I took two things uh, significant out of that. The first of them was that he clearly believes that a no-deal Brexit doesn't quite throw the constitutional question up in the air, but it certainly readjusts the constitutional question. And he spoke specifically about, you know, liberal unionists perhaps coming to decide that they would prefer to be in the EU in a modern liberal state, i.e. In, in, uh, to, be, to, be, to be part of Ireland rather than to remain part of an, an, an insular outside the EU uh, United Kingdom. So he clearly thinks that something is going to change in the North uh, over the medium term, at least possibly the short term, uh, if there is a no-deal Brexit. But he also believes that unionist uh, anxieties at the moment are such that now is not the time to be 
for the government to convene a New Ireland Forum or to do a Green Paper on the United Ireland or to start talking about the desirability or the practicalities of a United Ireland because, uh, uh, because of the effect on unionist sensibilities uh, at, at, at the moment. So on the one hand, he was saying, yes, this will be a thing, but he was also saying, we need to be very careful how we go about this. Thanks for that, Pat. That's it for today's podcast. Thanks to our producer, Declan Comlin, and to the McGill Summer School for facilitating us here today. Do remember that your views are always very welcome. You can mail me at hlinhan at irishtimes.com or you can get me on Twitter. Also, we're always very grateful for reviews, preferably of a five-star nature, on Apple Podcasts. But until the next time, which is very soon, thanks very much for listening.